0: I'm hoping you'll become more aware of those moments when a deeper part of you is prompting you to see things differently, and maybe even go a new direction. So let's get started. Today, I'm excited to have a conversation with Dr. Stacy Shelby, author, speaker, educator, and depth psychotherapist. She's a registered clinical counselor in Canada, a certified dream tender and she has studied in indigenous and yoga traditions. Stacy's gifted at working with the symbolic language of soul and is dedicated to honoring soul as it shows up in daily life. You know I love that. Something interesting is that Dr. Shelby has lectured for multinational fashion corporations to bring a mythic and depth perspective to the concept of beauty, relationships, and transformation. She's also facilitated numerous workshops, speaking on topics like The Wild Woman, Psyche and Eros, Midlife Awakening, Alchemy and Patriarchy. I came to know Stacy when she served as Dissertation Chair for my own Ph.D. research. Her encouragement and critiquing contributed to my growth as a scholar for sure. Now I'm so honored to have her as my colleague and friend. I really enjoyed Stacy's first book. Tracking the Wild Woman Archetype, a Guide to Becoming a Whole, Indivisible Woman. It was inspired by her PhD research about how the wild woman archetype often shows up in midlife for women once they become aware of the ways in which culture has over-domesticated them. I was honored to get a sneak peek at Dr. Shelby's second book, which will be released very soon. It's called Love and Soulmaking, Searching the Depths of Romantic Love. She takes on romantic relationships and all the mythic expectations we project onto that magical other, and then moves the conversation towards how relationships offer a treasure of opportunities for inner and outer union. So let's get started. Welcome, Stacey. How's your day going?
1: Hi, Deb. Thanks for having me. It's a great day and great day to be here. I'm excited to
0: have a chat with you. Awesome. Me too. So let's jump right in. Um, your first book was about the wild woman archetype. One of the things I realized in my midlife unraveling was that as much of a, as I thought of myself as a rebel, I ended up being trapped in convention in so many ways. And when I realized it, I was like, no, no. And then the reconstruction phase of my midlife was all about unleashing my inner wild woman. Or letting her come out to play again. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what the wild woman archetype is and how you explored this natural, but buried part of women in your research and how that's contributed to where you are today with your personal work and your mission.
1: Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks, Deb. And starting with wild woman is a great place to start, even though these, um, The the life of soul, the life of psyche is decidedly non-linear. It's quite um, like the labyrinths and spirals come to mind. There is a linear path where I went from doing my doctoral research on the wild woman archetype to writing the book, tracking the wild woman archetype. To this next book, which is Love and Soul Making, Searching the Depths of Romantic Love, which is due to come out um, sometime in the next couple of months. And so Wild Woman um, is an expression of soul. So love and soul making leaves into uh, um, leverages off of the myth of Psyche and Eros, which we'll get into a bit more, I'm sure. But Psyche is a personification of wild woman, but with the really distinct difference that wild woman is much closer to the instinctual sphere, to the body. We know her through our embodied experience as women. And so both with um, soul, Psyche, and wild woman, the journey, you know, probably for everybody, but because we're women, we're talking about women, is really what I'm, the term I'm really liking is to decolonize the psyche, to decolonize the soul and to decolonize the body. And so as we do that, we come into uh, direct contact with the wisdom that we know in our bodies, that really innate, instinctual, ancestral, you know, long before 2000 years of colonization, right? And so we reclaim that knowing at midlife, and then we learn to trust it. It's not like we ever have it all figured out, but we learn to trust the wisdom that's in our, in our bones, and that is what I would call both wild woman and soul.
0: I love it, and the terms that you use are really powerful, they're really visceral. Um, decolonize because women that women, so much of them has been forced underground or taken from them and warped. So to reclaim and reclaim a territory, literally like our bodies, and then to reclaim our own source of knowledge, our own natural way of being is just, I, I really love it because it's serious. It's serious. It's um, timely
1: with with a, what I, I want to use the word, even a sense of urgency, like right now, where it's such a peak time in history, where it's so important we return to Deep knowing, soulful relationships, meaningful mm-hmm. connection with self and other and archetypal other with anima mm-hmm. mundi, the world's soul. Like there is a now is the time sense of feeling around attuning to that wild wisdom that's within us, that soulful wisdom.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, that resonates with me because I do feel called right now And I feel a great sense of urgency to encourage people to self-reflect because we know that the outer is a reflection of the inner. And for those of us who think, oh, I've done that. No, we're being called to go even deeper so that we can make space for others to do the same. I love it. The first sentence in your upcoming book sort of sums it up. Nicely. I love it. After I read the whole book, I went back and I saw the first sentence and I'm like, Oh, that's pretty much it is what it is. You say that romantic love is the ultimate transformer. I remember one of my professors suggesting that first marriages are typically about the working out of parental complexes. And that was true for me as much as I wanted to resist that. And then I was so swept up in my first post-divorce romantic relationship. It made my head spin. I was aware that there was projection going on only because I was a newbie studying depth psychology. Otherwise, I don't know what would have happened. I knew that there was a purpose to our relationship that was beyond what my mind could possibly know. In the end, the relationship was not supposed to last, but instead it facilitated this healing of what I affectionately now call my sex and God wounds. The relationship was a vessel of transformation and key to that was surrendering. And we were talking about this before we were recording. So each time I surrendered to the awkwardness and all the challenges of the relationship, I ended up being rewarded in the form of literal pleasure, but the pleasure was spiritual and sexual at the same time, I really couldn't separate it. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna trust in this process because I keep getting rewarded. In your book, you spend a lot of time on Psyche and Eros, which you mentioned up front, the myth, and reading about it again for me made me realize how it really did track with my own journey. Could you first help our listeners understand the value of finding a mythic story to help understand a phase of life they're going through and then give an overview of the Psyche and Eros story? That's concise because we could talk about it all day and help us understand what's going on beneath the surface of our most intense romantic experiences. There is
1: so much that you just said. We could talk about that all of that all day. My gosh. Whatever um, you want to do. (laughs) What what threads to pick up? Um, Okay, so we'll start with Psyche and Eros because it is great to invoke them. And we cannot invoke Psyche and Eros without also invoking Aphrodite or Venus, who's the goddess of love, beauty, and sexuality. She is the patron of that myth. She's the catalyst. And she is also the patron of the... Upcoming book, whereas the last book, Wild Woman, would have been the inspiratress for that one. So, Psyche and Eros, the very abridged version, is a, a little um, a tale that is in the middle of a book by Apuleius from the second century um, AD. And the, the ultimate book is a hero's journey. But this particular little tale, which is the part that has actually endured for hundreds and hundreds of years, a couple thousand years almost, um, this part is, uh, it's got the basis of our current model of, we could say, the development of the feminine, the development of the soul, the expression of romantic love as we've uh, come to literalize it rather than internalize it. So, we can read this particular story as many, many things, and it's all of those things, and then probably a whole lot more. The gist of the story is Psyche, which translates um, as soul, it means soul, is this beautiful human woman, and Aphrodite, who is the goddess, the goddess of love, beauty, and sexuality is enraged because the humans are honoring Psyche and no longer Aphrodite. And in this rage, she sends her son Eros, who is the god of connection and love. We know him as Cupid who runs around and shoots Eros. He's become quite benign In our image of him, but he is not the mind. This is why we struggle with love, is because Eros kind of haphazardly shoots his arrows around without a lot of care and regard to what that does to the soul or the humans. So Aphrodite sends Eros to go kill Psyche. He accidentally pricks his finger, falls in love with Psyche. Takes her away to her um, pleasure palace, let's call it, where she can only see him in the dark. She doesn't really get to know him. So we're in a state of unconsciousness at that point. And then the sisters come and put little seeds of doubt because, you know, maybe they're jealous. We're not really sure. Eventually, Psyche uh, discovers that she's fallen in love and married to the God of love because she's betrayed him by gazing upon him with the lamplight of consciousness, he has to fly off. He's in a bit of a mood, away he goes to hang out in his mother's complex. So we're, we're in the mother complex now, he is. And then he's largely absent for the rest of the myth. And uh, Psyche, after you know enduring much heartbreak, realizes the only way forward is to go to the mother, go to Aphrodite and beg for a way to win back Eros. So Aphrodite still trying to get rid of her sends her on four impossible tasks, which I won't outline right now. But all four tasks are meant to destroy her and kill her. The last task is she literally has to go to Hades to hell and back with a bottle of beauty cream. On the return, she, she does all four tasks with um, with supernatural aid so there's always some other being beyond her that comes and helps her it's unachievable with human consciousness alone and she gets to the point of return to the upper world and she does the one thing she's not supposed to do she opens the cask of beauty ointment and in opening that ointment she goes into a death-like sleep and she thwarts all of the work she's done Eros finally he's he's been off stuck in his complex he just senses her distress and then he comes and swoops down and pricks her and or gives her a kiss depends on the version and that is the moment of awakening and then the myth wraps up super quickly she grows wings she's now the goddess psyche she's both uh, mortal and immortal And we learned she's been pregnant the whole time and she gives birth to a daughter and the daughter's name is pleasure in most translations. Some of it, uh, other translations are similar words, but pleasure. So that's the story of Psyche and
0: Eros. So I just want to say that. Thank you. That was great because I have had to read the story, of course, during the course of my Courses and to get my master's and PhD. And it's a really complicated story. You, you, I mean, I don't even know how you can simplify it. And I think one of the, um, I mean, so thank you for just doing a really concise and beautiful job. And I think most listeners will be able to be like, oh, kind of on a high level, that's what's going on there. And then, you know, applying it to your your whole life, the first, and again, even those steps we could talk about all day, but there are two particular things that really interest me. And one would be the first step, which had to do with the sorting, the sorting of the seeds. So this, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that because it is a first step. Um, if people, and I, and I see it as something useful to offer listeners, if they don't understand the whole myth that, and then the ending. So the first step, and then the ending, this birth of of pleasure, I find really interesting because even the word pleasure and women—you know—we have been um, separated from our own right to feel pleasure. So, I think that's why I felt like sharing that part of my story, where the more I surrendered to coming into deeper relationship with me, I felt a sense of pleasure, but it was a spiritual and sexual pleasure which eventually erupted in creativity for me. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but maybe you can just talk a little bit about that first step. Um, and then the sort of transcendent guidance she was receiving, um, and start there.
1: Yeah. So, so I'm going to actually go back to a little bit further just to contextualize it. The reason it's important to understand our personal myth that might be playing out is it can provide a context for what exactly is going on. So for anybody who's struggling with uh, relationships, sexuality, partnership, whether they're single or unpartnered, this is the overarching myth. Like if that's the Mm -hmm. predominant struggle, this is the overarching myth that is playing out through the psyche. And that myth will guide the, awakening, individuation, spiritual, you know, whatever we want to call that, it'll guide this midlife process, right? So that the really nice thing about this particular myth is these four tasks are that are impossible tasks, um, are all different developmental stages that we go through intra psychically. And we very often Uh, maybe almost always experience them in some sort of literalized way in the external world as well. And they don't actually run in a linear fashion. Um, I know that uh, Eric Neumann and Robert Johnson wrote about them in a linear fashion and both of them really felt like the awakening of the feminine in both men and women, the feminine soul, um, was a linear process. And... That is not my experience and that's not most people's experience, but we can recognize when we're actively Mm -hmm. working on a particular task. Um, So it just helps us. It helps the ego. It helps the consciousness organize what in the world is going on. So the first task that Aphrodite sends psyche on is to go and sort a heap or a pile of seeds and they're all mixed there's like every kind of seed there's like tiny poppy seeds tobacco seeds sesame seeds like every possible kind of seed and they're tiny 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 seeds and there's this massive heap and she has to do it before dawn or penalty of death you know impossible nobody can do that and it's also got similar threads to the story of Baba Yaga, where there's also a sorting of seeds. So it's a very archetypal theme that appears in other stories through, throughout history and time. So Psyche, who's prone to weepiness, collapses, can't do it. She's still naive. She's still a young girl. She, she, she's the maiden she can't, she just, I'm going to commit suicide. I can't do this. So the death fantasy as a fantasy can often appear. Right. And it's again, not meant to be literalized. It's signaling something new is about to be reborn in a new way, the death rebirth cycle. So she often fantasizes about suicide. So there she is. I'm going to just, I'm going to end it all. So as she's kind of in this hopeless despair, which most of us by this point have known at least once in our lives right the ant a uh, tiny little ant that we can think of as a catonic creature that moves between the underworld of the unconscious and the upper world of consciousness it's very industrious hardworking this ant hears her despair and takes pity on her and, gathers all the other ants and these industrious strong resourceful creatures that can move between conscious and unconscious realms similar to the way a dream can they sort all of these seeds and they have the task completed so as women we can look at where in our life are we sorting things out where's order happening what is being made sense of is it things like as simple as grocery list and organizing our closets, organizing our to-do lists, that's a slippery one because we want to make sure we're not caught in the patriarchy colonization, like when is it in Mm. service to soul would be the guiding question there. So where are we sorting things out, our feelings, this is primarily it, our feelings, our values, our goals, hopes, dreams, ideals, things that are authentically ours. Where are we sorting those out? And we can't do it with consciousness alone. We need supernatural aid of um, industrious creatures that can move between the realms and the worlds and come help us. So that notion of sorting, but using our unknown resources and trusting those that they can help us with that as well.
0: Yeah, it makes me recall one of the things that I sorted out. And I like that you point out the sorting can't just be done with the mind. The mind can think about it and sort of reflect and, and then figure out what it means and assign meaning to it. But during an active imagine, active imagination exercise that I did, where I drew things just out of my unconscious, all of a sudden I had this insight about something generational about the relations between men and women going back in my ancestry. And suddenly that allowed me to find the unconscious motivation behind marrying my husband. So consciously, this makes sense. I love this man, etc. But there was another unconscious reason that I married him, and it was to provide a kind of safety from myself, and I talk about safety from the chaos of my experiences of sexuality and relationship. And so literally that's the kind of, of sorting that I did. And there were, a lot, I mean, lots of experiences of sorting. and I appreciate you pointing out that the stages aren't necessarily um, linear because I, I like when Young um, talks about the spiral because I continue to s- come back and circle around, but finding deeper meaning. And then the deeper meaning ends up impacting what I'm putting out into the world. So I think this is gonna be really helpful um, for people. You've explained it in a really uh, understandable way. So I wanna talk a little bit now about relationships because it's, it's all being dismantled, conventional notions of relationship, which is very frightening to a lot of people when we don't have a framework to really think about the more metaphorical and symbolic purpose of, um, relationships. So the six months following my divorce, I did a lot. all of a sudden I was like, ah, my faucet got opened up and I had to go online and I started feverishly online dating, but I knew that, or, or I, I did know enough to know, Okay. This isn't about finding the man of my dreams. And I approached it as, okay, I need to learn how to relate to to men again. And it was interesting because there were 10. And when I was done, I was done. And I was like, huh, it was like, oh, this was one class, then another class. And the purpose of all of those relationships was really to bring me into, to get to know myself again, to start all over again. And not only know how to like set boundaries. So for me, it was all about setting boundaries and politely rejecting men I wasn't attracted to, but also coming into a healthier relationship with my body and my sexuality. And I thought I had loved my body and I had a lot of sex, but no, like I, this came out of the closet basically. So that experience seemed to prepare me for something more serious. So my first post-divorce romantic relationship that I really got swept up into that I referred to before. And now I have this hindsight where I think about to demand that a relationship be permanent seems kind of selfish and a human, arrogant thing because relationships have this transcendent thing about them. And if relationships are about soul making, then soul is kind of in charge. And we can't limit soul by like our notions of what is actually supposed to happen when it comes to the purpose of the relationship. So I've come to look at soulmates being not so much about, oh, we're the perfect partner, which maybe that is for some people, because they have this kind of mutual soul making that they can do with each other. But that's kind of rare. But for me, soulmates are about soul making, which means finding truth and you know i love how in your book you mentioned eve you know taking a bite of the apple that actually took a lot of courage and that's called going against the grain and the process of finding truth requires you to go against the grain and go against people who think that they know better for you so as i said conventional relationship structures are dismantling and i trust that as we each individually work it out which is a really painful process that some kind of higher form of relationship is going to emerge, so um, your book is really all about relationships, so just kind of go where you want to go uh, with that when it comes to what's going on with relationships now.
1: Yeah, and gosh again, <laughs> there's so many yeah. sentences in there that we could just go down so many different rabbit holes.: um, I think the one I want to go down is about. Um, The dismantling, uh, because it doesn't necessarily mean divorce, because I I don't, because if people start with that, they're going to freak Mm -hmm. out. That's too um, much of a place to start. And it absolutely does not mean that. Um, People can choose uh, to be in a long term committed partnership with somebody and still work out their. Mm personal calling and path, Um, we don't know what each other's journey is, we barely know what our own is, (laughs) you know, it's kind of a day to day experience of maybe we catch glimpses of where we're going, but um, we're engaged with the mystery as soon as we're engaged with soul. So the struggles of relationship, whether that's a commitment to a long-term partnership, and that that is an agreement you've made with yourself and with your partner, your human, your humanness, or whether that's um, whether you're dating and having lots of growth experiences, which is more like both you and I, um, the the journey is really unique, and so trusting that you can find. Find the gold in each experience, mm-hmm. right? And each meaningful connection. Um, I think the, the meaningfulness is the, the gift, right? Is, is the value we can glean from it. I also want to go back um, to pleasure and desire. We haven't brought in the word desire. I think it's really important to discern those two words. So there's a compulsivity element to desire. And that is not something we want to be fostering. So when it's that when it's that like hot, fiery in alchemy, we call it sulfur, um, raw sulfur, when it's that um, lustful desire, whether that's uh, sexual or whether that's alcohol or drugs or shopping or wherever there's that compulsive element, um, that, that is something we want to keep a stopper on. And we want to keep that in the vessel of our body. We don't want to act out from that place um that that's more related to the the instinctual appetites of the archetypes that are non-generative so we we really have to develop a high level of discernment between that hot energy and then pleasure which is the birth of pleasure the promise at the end of all the suffering and effort that psyche soul goes through um that has like almost a quality of warmth consistency, joy, play, it doesn't have this hot fire, quick desire element. Like it's, it's like a campfire, not a brush fire, right? So um, there's a really important need to discern those because if we keep pursuing desire, we stay unconscious and we don't let the energy build for the transformation process. And that is a really, really hard process of learning to manage one's desires uh, that that arise from there. I
0: I love that. And um, I think it's really difficult, especially for women, because both desire and pleasure are so restricted for women. So one of the things that I want to be really cautious about for me, it was that kind of desire, which the root of desire is something transcendent. But what you're talking about is, is not becoming obsessed with the literal, but finding, you know, having relationship to a deeper relationship to the desire. So I had very hot experiences and I needed to. So, so many women have sort of suppressed and repressed their desire that I feel like part of the journey is first not worrying about that because it has to be unleashed. And a natural part of unleashing something that's been buried is that you might overcompensate and you can't feel bad about that, right? All you can do is reflect about it And this happens with my clients a lot where they're experiencing something that's been buried and then they feel bad that like, oh, I went too far or, oh, I unleashed or whatever. And so if you, you know what I mean? So that we don't have a framework for that, right? So we're either too controlling. And then when we unleash, then we're like, oh, now you got to tamp that down without finding the purpose of the unleashing and then the meaning. And it's in this space of finding the meaning that allows you then to not, it's not about controlling manage to manage the tension. But if the goal in the beginning is like, I need to, and I can't remember who it was, um, in the knowing woman book, there's all those women, young yins who, and one of them really criticizes young and really youngians for being so intellectual about everything. So even though psychology is about the feminine, about the body and sexuality, we also tend to intellectualize it and not like, you know, not recognize that crazy body, dirty sexes, like is part of the process, but then what do we do with it and how do we learn from it so that we don't get Addicted to the wrong part of it, you know what I'm saying? So
1: yeah, yeah, and I think that um, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that in because uh, I think the word I would apply here is shame. So if mm-hmm. there's shame associated with enjoying your sexuality in your body, then then you haven't liberated um, the desire, yeah, yet, and you haven't really achieved pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, you're right. And it it is so true, particularly around 40. I'm going to actually put a number to it. <laughs> women um, very often go through this really fun sexual awakening, right? And it's amazing. And they do all kinds of things that go against every grain they've been told they're supposed to go against. And it's so exciting when women are in that place of like, oh my god, sex is so fun, because it's no longer about finding a safe partner to like create a false sense of security and have a family with like, it's about sex for pleasure and it really does awaken something lovely in women. And that is meant to be enjoyed, right? You're, you're absolutely right. That's meant to be enjoyed. When, when we go through that um, desire and become addicted to that rush and we keep repeating it and we're, go through a shame cycle of, Oh my God, I shouldn't have slept with that person. You know, then we're not on track. We have to go back to something else in our bodies and connect with something instinctual. And probably that's when we need to learn to keep a stopper on until we can at least figure out what's going
0: on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that tracks with my experience. I had that woof unleashing, but I was also because I had the benefit of knowing some concepts. I could kind of be aware of like, what's going on here? What's going on here? And I journaled all about it. And then that was done. I was like, check that off the list. I was done. And then I had the deeper sweeping up experience and I got something out of that. And then there was a point in my life where it's interesting. I never thought I would be so, um, enjoying the solitude now that I've been enjoying and I don't feel that, but if I hadn't expressed and allowed myself to do the unleashing, I wouldn't have developed to where I am now where a lot of the sexual energy, which is so misunderstood, it's life energy, it's creative energy, um, to express itself. And, and now what's interesting is my last couple of encounters with men, I haven't been sexually attracted to them, but I, but there is something else. I'm like, what is it? And I don't even know what, but I know they were being used again, because when that ended, I had another unleashing of something creative. So my whole podcast thing started when this last encounter ended. So it is so, you know, and again, we have no framework for people to be able to find meaning that goes beyond the literal, the literalness. But I do think people, are looking for it. And my writer friend and I are going to have a conversation about slow burn romance novels, which I didn't know what that was. That's what it is. It's coming to understand the the psychological experience of love and desire and and pleasure. So, oh, I love this so much. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, maybe just moving on a little bit and staying with this. Um, I love Barbara Marks Hubbard, who I think recently passed away. And she has this A concept she calls the evolutionary woman. And I love the way she talks about co creative relationships. So, moving away from understanding that, yes, there was a whole phase of human evolution that had to do with the literal creating human beings so that there would be enough human beings so that the world would last, the population would grow, et cetera. And now moving into this sort of from literal co creating to, um, a different kind of creating and how now men and women in friendship or in romantic relationship sometimes there's something deeper going on than just the uh romantic attraction that they're working together they're partnering either in businesses or in creativity and i and i and i see this i see this going on actually and you know when i tell people you know, again, sexual energy is not a bad thing. I have felt aroused by an intellectual idea. I've gotten in the car. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to create this new framework for working with my nonprofit clients. And all of a sudden I was just like, Oh my gosh, like I'm sexually excited right now. And so one of the things that I would like to do is like, bring that to people that, you know, to help them, I guess, first you have to sort of separate from it. Right. Because we kind of are drowning in conventional notions of what sexual energy is. And, and it's all about like being relieved through, you know, an orgasm or through actual literal sex, but there are other places that it wants to go. And it wants to actually contribute to the evolving consciousness of humanities. So talk a little bit about your approach and the framework you offer to explore this evolving notion of relationship with self and other whether it's in your book, your practice, your courses or your workshops, there, there are a lot of different ways you do it, but you know, what, what is it that you're, that you're offering to people that that will help them? But
1: when I'm talking about creator or creative energy or being in service to soul or psyche, which I would say is my guiding compass. Um, how can I be in service today? You know, every day, how can I be in service today? you show me. Um, then it's this uh, like vessel. So then body, ego, consciousness is surrendered to be a vessel of co-creation with psyche. So as much as psyche, the anima mundi, the world soul wants to, um, we're part of it, you know, like it's, it's not incarnate through us. That's not accurate. It's uh, we are, we are the matter form of you know, spirit and matter, that soul. Keep having images of like webs with little dewdrops on them, you know, like we're each a little dewdrop on the web of the Anima Mundi, something like that. So we're all interconnected. We're related to her. She is the one that communicates to us and through us through. You know, dreams creativity imagination synchronicity fantasies strife in our relationships if we can look at them through the lens of projection um transference those kinds of concepts which i explore a lot in the book as well this is why relationship is the ultimate transformer it brings up all those things if we look metaphorically so creative energy can be literalized as sexual energy. Uh, that instinct is the most powerful instinct in opposition to the spiritual instinct as Jung has identified. And I absolutely agree with, I think those are t- the two strongest. Um, and I think they're inseparable, which is where you've arrived at with your research. They're one and the same, there are two expressions of it. And so when we're creating um, for me there's often been some sort of romance that uh, that presents when there's a creation project happening and then i'm like oh i wonder what this is about wonder what's going to be born through this cuz now i know it's not literally a long-term relationship that just isn't you know 13 years it's not part of my trajectory and so I, I get curious about, okay, what, what else is going on? And I can just enjoy the pleasure of the experience for the experience and be grateful to explore that connection with that person and the creative energy builds. And suddenly, you know, there's a new something <laughs> book, like for you said, with the podcast or your book, for me, the new book, the wild woman book courses, like there's always some sort of manifestation of energy and that can be experienced as sexual arousal, or it can be just an, um, I want to use the word outpouring, because some days it just feels like I am not a writer that sits with a blank screen, like it overwhelms me how quickly the energy can come out when I can show up and surrender to it. And then there'll be a period of gestating and quiet and renewal. And that might be a few years that like, you know, there'll be energy building quietly and solitude becomes the grateful reprieve and then it builds again and then away we go again and some new thing is Mm co-created with that energy of creator greater anima mundi whatever whatever we want to call it yes Um, and then i think we can also uh i know we can because i I have a number of people doing this in my life where we can co-create and collaborate with. Other humans, human relationships, literal human relationships, to bring something dynamic to the world. And if there's a bit of like erotic spark that isn't literalized in a romance, it, like if it's not appropriate to, like if you're colleagues and you're married or like Lord knows what, that energy can be um, used to give birth to some new wonderful idea thing that's meant to be in service to the greater good, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and that for some reason led me right to this notion of, and you talk about this, and I've talked about this, that friendships, especially between men and women, are very threatening to convention, conventional notions of what's appropriate. And it's a direct threat to patriarchy because oh now we're not in control of the ranking one above the other and so i guess that's what i'm thinking is that really my last two encounters have really went through this oh is this about it was more that the person was projecting onto me this kind of romantic and i was like i don't know what's going on here but let's go with this and in a very short time period our relationship transformed and because we are both honest about what was going on, we just kind of kept hanging in there. So even though like he didn't necessarily get exactly what he wanted it was, we were, he was like conscious enough to be like, okay, now we're, let's be friends and then, Oh, let's try this. And, and so I, yeah, I don't know. I have this intuition that that might be my life. I don't know. Maybe I am going to meet eventually this person, but i think i've really accepted that the journey of it because i'm not so attached to a particular outcome is pretty cool and it doesn't mean there's not ups and downs and there's disappointment about what happens and even like oh my heart you broke my heart or whatever but knowing that there's meaning and purpose in it no matter what the outcome is pretty cool it's a pretty cool story
1: it is and you know the anguish of heartbreak when we're younger is just devastating it's the worst you know and oh god supporting people in therapy going through heartbreak you just want to like collect them up and hold them you know it's so awful and 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 we've been through it that's why I know (laughs) (laughs) and at this age um I don't know there's just always so much gratitude when like love can show up for however long it shows up, right. Just this to be in that beauty, right. To be in that real beauty of loving and caring, whatever the outcome.
0: Yes. Yes. Oh, this is a perfect way to end. Um, this has been great. I love talking about this stuff. Do you have anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, we sort of talked about something that people can do, but maybe you have another call to action because you and I are about encouraging people to self reflect so that we can then contribute to, you know, the external world. So I don't know if you have something particular um, for them to uh, start with.
1: Um, well, I'm going to do a shameless plug for my book. <laughs> both books um tracking the wild woman archetype and love and soul making love and soul making has some concrete exercises about projection about going through the tasks and where those tasks are active in your life um so you know that as a very accessible starting point is great um There's, of course, courses. I've got courses on my website, um, podcasts like this, listening to them, Uh, group workshops. That's something I'm getting more and more into offering because of that collaborative, co-creative energy that we can share in that Mm -hmm. field, which I enjoy so much. Um, Individual therapy, you know, there's, there's kind of no substitute. I think you have Dreams, journaling, synchronicities, paying attention, being curious, listening to your body, speaking up, all of those, all of those things, right?
0: I love it. And tell people where they can find information about you and all of this.
1: Uh, the easiest way is my website. I keep most things on there. That's dr stacy s t-a-c-e-y, shelby, s h-e-l-b-y.com. And then I'm also Dr. Stacy Shelby on Instagram and Facebook.
0: And I noticed on your website that because your book is not published yet, that they can sign up to be on the list to find out when it's going to be released. So they can be one of the first people to buy it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And um, yeah, so you can sign up, you can get there through my website. There's a link
0: as soon as somebody's at my website. Well, thanks so much for a conversation full of depth and soul-making.
1: Wonderful. Thanks, Deb. It was so fun.
0: I'm your host, Deborah Lukovic, and you are listening to Dose of Depth Podcast. To get updates on new episodes, my writing, and how I teach my clients to get to know that deeper part of themselves, go to DebraLukovic.com. Oh, and if you're not ready for a coach, learn what my clients know in my book, Your Soul is Talking, Are You Listening? Five Steps to Uncovering Your Hidden Purpose. You can check it out on my website or get it on Amazon.